Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Rowe, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. I'm here with Dr. Kostenberger, and today we're joined by Dr. Ben Glad. Dr. Glad is Associate Professor of New Testament Reformed Theological Seminary. He's the author and co-author of several books, including From Adam and Israel to the Church, A Biblical Theology of the People of God, the inaugural volume in the Essential Studies of Biblical, Biblical Theology series, which he edits, published by IVP Academic. Dr. Glad, it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Hey, thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad to be virtually here. <laughs> Yes, Ben. So good to have you as a guest in our program today. Really enjoyed uh, getting to know each other over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, some may not be familiar with you and your work, so uh, let's start out by, you know, please tell us a little bit about yourself, where you teach, your background, family, favorite sports team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I live in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I teach at RTS Jackson, of course, and uh, it's going on nine years. Got here in 2012. I've been married for 15, 15, uh, July 9th, July 9th. Yeah. Um, it's probably felt like five or seven. It has not felt like 15. It's crazy. It, time goes by so fast and you're having fun. Um, I have two kids, Judah and Simon. They are 10 and seven. Mm -hmm. I'm from Maryland. My wife is from Grand Rapids, Michigan, mm -hmm. and I grew up in a uh, conservative Christian home and uh, a dispensational home at that, which is sort of what what prompted me to to write on uh, Adam and Israel. We mm -hmm. can get into that a little bit later, mm -hmm. but yeah. So I grew up in a conservative fundamentalist. I even spent my first two years of college at Bob Jones University mm -hmm. uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, and then I went. From transferred uh, from there to the Master's College that uh, John mm -hmm. MacArthur is, uh, is associated with that. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I went to Wheaton College, got my MA and PhD at Wheaton. And it really wasn't until Wheaton when I started to read the Bible as a whole. So it's really sort of my journey. And, and, and a lot of my a lot of my work kind of comes out of my own journey and where where I see myself now and and how things are put together. Um what else? I'm trying to think. Oh, my favorite sports team. So uh -huh. I grew up in Mar I grew up in Maryland. Uh, I grew up watching the Redskins. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not. They haven't been very good for very long. It's it's, it's, it's quite depressing. <laughs> but then when I moved to Chicago, I was there for about ten years. I watched the Bears. The Bears are fun to watch. They're about a mediocre team. Uh -huh. uh, they, I, I enjoy the Bears. Now here locally, we have the Saints. With Drew Brees, so I I like the Saints. I'm a Saints fan. I've been to a game. It it really is a good a good team to cheer for. So, well, far as football goes, you know, I'm from the D.C. area, and then I lived a dozen oh, a dozen or so years in Chicago. So I feel your pain. Oh yeah, <laughs> I know. I should have grown up in should have grown up in Boston or something. You know, uh, that's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I missed out. I missed out. I should have gone to Gordon Conwell. How about that? Uh, yeah, well, we moved to uh, Chicago, you know, when I studied there at Trinity, I think it was in, yeah, uh, yeah. in, in 90, and, uh, yeah. and I guess uh, moved to the States in 85, so the Bears were really good yeah. those years. Really good so, then, so, right. So remember, right. that was 
also the time the Chicago Bulls were really mm-hmm. good. So, you know, right. what a what a treat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I would I wish I could I wish I lived in Chicago yeah. in the mid nineties just to watch. Oh, Nothing yeah. like that has ever happened in any sport. Nobody's ever mm. seen anything like that. Oh right. man. Absolutely. It's all about timing, yeah. you know. Yeah. It is. It is about timing. <laughs> Right. If this 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 sports season yeah. is not going to be a very good one, no, so no. no matter who you're cheering for, it's not going to be good. Mm. Well, Ben, as as as, uh, as we all know, uh, there there are quite a few uh, biblical theology series uh, already, which, by the way, uh, speaks well of the you know the the popularity of the discipline. Uh, yeah. I happened to edit or co-edit a couple of th- those series myself, the uh, the Biblical Theology of the New Testament series, which is yeah, an eight-volume yeah. series with Zondervan. Yeah. And incidentally, yeah. I just uh, finished editing uh, Doug Moo's volume on oh, on the Theology right. of Paul, oh. which I'm really excited about. Um, and so we're kind of entering the home stretch. that's going to be volume five out of eight. Uh, and uh, the other series that I have a hand in editing is the Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary with Lexham uh, right. at a projected 40 volumes. So, you know, there I think we've only published three of them. So yeah. we got 37 yeah. more volumes to go. Uh, so you're a wise man because I read that you limited the number of volumes in the series you're editing. And of course, We'd be uh, remiss not to mention the uh, NSBT series edited by uh, my esteemed mentor, D.E. Carson, which is, of course, in turn patterned after the classic uh, SBT, the Studies in Biblical Theology series from years Mm -hmm. ago. So, you know, in that light, why don't you say a few words about the, the new series you're editing, Essential Studies in Biblical Theology? Yeah, so that's a great question. I, that, that idea came to me uh, several years ago, maybe three years ago or four years ago, mm-hmm. when I was at ETS. I can't remember what city we were in, but I pitched I pitched that idea to Andy LePew, who was the editor, senior editor at IVP at the time, and Dan Reed. And I asked them. I said, "Hey, what?" I, I this was at their booth. This was at the IVP booth, and I said. What if we did a series, a 10, what makes this series unique is that you limit it to 10 volumes and you pitch it at a lay level, not lay, 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 but lay level, it's accessible, but yeah, you can get, you can get into stuff Mm -hmm. and it's 10 volumes and you go from Genesis to Revelation. You just go start at the beginning, go to the end. And you really sort of give them a nice overview, sort of a, a, a framework in which to mm-hmm. to write the volumes. And they really liked it. Dan Reed really, really liked it. And he got back to me soon mm-hmm. after, and we started to come up with a list. And um, that's kind of how it started. So I wrote the first volume, mm-hmm. Adam and Israel, from Adam and Israel to the Church, a Biblical Theology of the People of God. I wrote that volume to sort of set the tone, the rhythm for the in, entire series. What makes it unique is that it is biblical theological, that it stretches both testaments. I'm a huge fan of Carson's NSBT set. I think that's, that's a stellar. 
Um, there are some volumes though that's like okay, so it's Isaiah, so Abernathy on Isaiah, it's very good, but he spends a lot of it's it's, it's Isaiah, or then there's Job, or mm-hmm. um, yes. Yeah, so so what I wanted to do here with this one is no, let's let's go a little bit broader, and uh, let's go from Genesis to Revelation, and so it's a little um, it's a little broader in at some level, but we don't there's not as much. SP and there are not as much systematics that that can get into the SB the NSBT like Henri Blochet's mm-hmm. <laughs> that one's pretty theological mm-hmm. is, is like, it's, it's very very good but it's pretty heavy duty <laughs> theology so uh, I, so that was that was really one major mm-hmm. characteristic yeah. is that it stretches both testaments and then it's accessible and then it's only 10 volumes. It's, we're just limiting it to 10. Mm-hmm. So I, I really like it. I'm editing uh, Desmond Alexander's volume now. I've finished, we finished four or five of these things, and they're going to be rolling out starting. The second one comes out next month. Michael Morales on the Passover and Exodus, which is so good. Volume three comes out in October. Matt Harmon on Sin and Exile. The fourth one comes out in the spring by Brandon Crow on Covenant and Law, which is great. So we really have everything's kind of in motion now. It's pretty exciting. That sounds fantastic. Uh, you mentioned your inaugural volume uh, from Adam and Israel to the Church. Uh, so let's get into that subject. What is your approach to the Israel Church relationship in this volume? And you can explain maybe how you align with various schools of thought, as you mentioned yeah. before. So I teach at RTS, Reform Theological Seminary, mm-hmm. and at the heart, at the heart of Reform theology is of course you, have, you of course you have the five solas. <laughs> if you were really to get to dig down even deeper, the backbone of Reform theology is God's covenantal relationship with His people, and how that and how that takes place, how it works itself out in the five solas. Mm-hmm. So I am. So I am unashamedly a covenant theologian. That's where I, that's where I work. That's my entire framework, my broad systematic framework. That's very different from where I grew up. And so I, I kind of migrated from a dispensational uh, framework that sees, that sees a, a, a distant relationship or at least a, a stra- not strain, but Israel and the church as being two separate entities mm-hmm. to now within covenant theology where now they're brought together. And so it really changes how you put the two Testaments together. So in light of that, I said, well, hey, I want to write a book on how we as the church today identify with God's people in the Old Testament and ultimately Adam and Eve. But instead of me, so most books do this through the lens of covenant, which is fine, which is the way to do it. But I'm going to use the lens of image of God. And so I'm going to bring both. So I'm going to bring our identity in Christ and Israel's identity as a covenant community in the image of God and Adam and Eve's identity in the image of God. And so I'm going to align all three of those together and kind of watch it unfold. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what I'm doing there. So, um, you know, Put you on the spot here. Somebody were to say the church started in Acts two, how would you respond? That's a great question. I mean, <laughs> I, I, 
you know, well, I mean, the, the term ecclesia is even, I mean, that even goes back to, I think it's Ezra Nehemiah and the LXX. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> you know, there, there are seeds that even that term ecclesia goes back way before the New Testament. And even you even, it even crops up again in Matthew. Um, and that's one of the most, that's a very difficult text there um, with Peter there in Matthew 18. Um, so, so there is at some level, something changes at Pentecost. And I would say that there's a structural, there's some sort of a structural change in God's people that we are now, the spirit is now being poured out. And this is going to be the major component there. The spirit is now really poured out upon God's people. Now, not that he was absent in the Old Testament. And my view, I know this is debated, that um, in the Old Testament, my view, everybody, all, all uh, believers, were possessed by the Spirit. And in the New Testament, we're possessed, but even in a, in a greater way. So that greater way takes place there at Pentecost. So, uh, so there, is a, there is a change, a deepening, a, a tightening of our relationship to God um, at a formal level, if you want to call it that. So, that's, so yeah, so I would say, I wouldn't say it, it radically starts in Acts 2. I would say it's a moment. It's a momentous occasion. How about that? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it's a tentpole. It's a it's a tentpole in God's program. It's a movement. Yes, and again, you know, I sorely tempted. I just Greg Alice and I just published a book on the Holy Spirit. So I'm sorely tempted to to you know keep following up. But we're here to talk about your book, not mine. <laughs> So uh, let's, 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 let's keep going with it. Yeah, it's good though. Like it's good. I mean, I know, I think Triner, I think Triner, Triner's in that camp. And I know mm-hmm. Jim Hamilton, I think Jim Hamilton is, did his dissertation on that subject, I believe. And mm-hmm. so yeah, I know it's really debated. I, and, sure. and I think, and honestly, I do think at the end of the day, I, I think we're pretty close to each other once you really start to get involved in the conversation. I think you'd be mm-hmm. really, really close. Yeah, and again, so. certainly right here, I think for our listeners, it's it's helpful just to be exploratory and to unpack that that topic as a bit of a case study, right? This being the inaugural volume of that essential biblical right, theology series, right. which which is such a great idea. <laughs> So uh, I think maybe what we can do is just give people a few highlights from your book and have you kind of flesh some of those out. So uh, starting at the beginning, uh, you start with Adam and Eve, and uh, you use that that grid, if you will, uh, saying that Adam and Eve, uh, and this this may be new to some of our listeners, so it'd be good for you to comment, that they were kings, priests, and prophets in the Garden of Eden— and so I think maybe, you know, we're both interested in hermeneutics. So I think that would be a good example of how hermeneutics does inform biblical theology. So, you know, what is your hermeneutic as you, as you read the creation narrative that, you know, leads you to come up with this uh, taxonomy, if you will, uh, Adam and Eve as, as kings, priests, and prophets? And how does Eve in particular uh, fit into the role of prophet, priest, and king? I know in the title you say, you know, from Adam and Israel to the church, but, but you include Eve in that as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll unpack both those questions. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, just in how I am going to read Genesis one, to three, I get you, you have to go forward and backwards. So you start with Genesis three, 
you you exegete it, you read it, and then you see how it unfolds in the rest of the Pentateuch, and then you see how the rest of the Pentateuch unfolds in the Old Testament, and then you go into the New Testament, you read the New Testament, and then you go back to Genesis with the New Testament eyes with greater clarity, and you start to reread it. So you're constantly you, you at the end of the day, the New Testament is going to bring clarity is going to bring insight into what is already in the Old Testament. And so that actually will in, help us read the the creation narrative there with Adam and Eve. So we, we really can. And I think 1 Corinthians 15 really bears this out. Paul is reading, Paul is reading uh, Genesis 1 to 2 there in a very interesting way about calling how the first Adam is of the earth. And how the the of the earth of the old ad, of, of of the earth of the old age, and that the last Adam is of heaven, of the new creation, of the spirit. If you read Second Temple literature, especially in the Qumran material, they were saying the opposite. They were saying, "Oh, the first Adam is so amazing. He has glory. He has these these he, he he's full of all this amazing stuff." And Paul says, "Well, that's true. That's true. However." He's of the earth. And so it's this. So what happens is that Paul is rereading Genesis 2 in light of Christ. And he's bringing more insight there. So that's so that's going to be our, that's going to be sort of how I read the Bible in general. So I always let the New Testament give the final word. And it does affect things. And does, does, does that make second? Does, does that make second? Does that make sense? And yeah, Andreas? that's very helpful. I think that's exactly what I was after. Just I think that's that's. Uh, very illuminating, just you know how you approach, just how you read the Bible, because that pretty much then right. pretty much predetermines the outcome to some extent. And so, uh, as you said, kind of was a two-part question. You know, how does Eve fit into that uh, mm-hmm. uh, threefold mm-hmm. taxonomy? Yeah. So then the second part, right? So the second part is, uh, so Adam and Eve, prophet, priest, and king. Eve, she's prophet, priest, and king. They are both ontologically equal. They're both made in God's image. They are both worthy. They are dignified, right? They get all made in there. They are, you know, look at how amazing they are. The pinnacle of, of, of creation. However, even though they're ontologically the same, they're going to, they have different roles. So even though Eve is a priest or priestess, and even though she's a prophet or a prophetess in a king or queen, however you want to label, that uh, the way she works that out is going to be different from how Adam works out his. And so that's is where I would say I'm a complementarian. Even before the fall, it's supposed to be worked out a certain way. So they, even though they have the same dignity, dignity and ontology, the way that they use their roles are going to be are going to be different. Uh, even though they still are kings, the way that she works with her children, interacts with them, interacts with the created environment, the cultural mandate, it's gonna. She's gonna compliment Adam. Um, yeah. So does that make sense? I'm, I'm pretty it sure does, you would agree. And, uh, you would agree with yes, and that was part of you know my 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 question. I think the other part might be, and again, you know, I know we want to keep things moving to give a good survey of your book, but just briefly. You know, the idea that in the Old Testament, obviously priests, right, especially the Levites, were male, right? I mean, there's 
is right, really, right. Uh, you know, and so that right. you can see that that's something I'm wondering now. If he was a priestess, then, you know, it doesn't seem like it kind of carries through, you know, in the rest of the, right, the Old right. Testament. Right. But, uh, I mean, you have to think in terms of, I mean, she's in God's temple there in the garden. She's she's going to meet, she's going to mediate God's presence to her children. And uh, she's going to help, she's going to help Adam work it out there, expand, sort of push the boundaries out outside of the garden. I'm getting, this is sort of what, what Beale's going to argue or, or what he does argue. So she's going to, she's going to assist that. We just don't have data. Scripture doesn't, doesn't quite speak to this and how what what that looks like precisely uh we kind of have to i think imply it and uh infer it there um but as far as but when it's carried out you're right when it's carried out it is the men who are going to do that what's interesting though about the prophets the 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 prophetic piece is really interesting because in joel 2 right we get the prophecy with the pouring out of the spirit and then it says that Every there, everybody will know the Lord. Everybody will be able to teach one another. Because remember, priests they have the they have they bear the responsibility for teaching the Israelites God's law. But then in the New Covenant, every, all the women are priests. That's how I interpret uh, that text in Jeremiah, the one in Joel two about the teaching aspect. That's, I connect that both to prophet and to priest. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just going to be different, right? I guess it's, it's going to work itself out in different roles. Mm-hmm. Along those lines, uh, as we move on to Israel, you talk about their role, obviously, through prophet, priest, and king. And um, how do you balance the corporate dimension with the fact that only certain individuals served as kings, priests, and prophets? Right. That's a great question. So what happens in the fall is that the the divine image then becomes split um, into three different offices. Mm-hmm. So Adam, and I would say Eve here, but we'll focus on Adam. So Adam is created in God's image. God is a prophet, priest, and king <laughs> in Adam because he is in, in God's image. He too is the prophet, priest, and king. He does what God does. But what happens after the fall is that these three, these three offices are split up into off into official offices, which is what we get. I think it's, is it, I think it's Deuteronomy 18 and 19, or is it 17 and 18? It's right in there where we have the three offices now are assigned because, because we're now in a fall, post-fall world that the offices are split up. But every once in a while in the Old Testament, we get hints of the three offices coming back together. For example, David, I mean, David's a prophet, priest, and king. He wrote many Psalms. He, he is obviously a king, and he's a prophet too. And he donned an ephod and went into the tabernacle. Um, so he he has some sort of a priestly capacity. Moses, I would say the same thing about Moses. So every once in a while, we get these these prophet, priest, and king figures. But then in the New Testament, it's now all of God's people have this. Now I will say this: one of the things when I'm writing the book, I, I sort of landed on, and I, and I think I've refined it a little bit better. Now is when even after the fall, we still have or people everybody has fallen humanity still has a still has God's image imprinted in or on them. The fall does not efface God's image; it perverts it, it messes it up, 
In other words, unbelievers, I mean, if you think about it, unbelievers are still prophet, priest, and king. But they abuse those three offices, and they use, they use them for their own destruction, or for their own, I should say, gain, but ultimate destruction. And so what I try to then argue, and this is, this is a unique piece, and I really haven't seen many people talk about it. So I call it the anti-image, anti or the, the anti-king, the anti-priest, and the anti-prophet. So it's the exact opposite of the divine commission. So instead of ruling uh, on behalf of God, an unbeliever rules as God and abuses power instead of keeping keeping the temple uh, clean from defilement, the anti-priest defiles the temple. And the prophet, instead of speaking on behalf of God, speaks lies and speaks as God. So it's this anti, and that will, that obviously, that figure is going to culminate in the anti, in the antichrist, which is what we get in, uh, on into the New Testament. So that's, that's sort of a I try to highlight that a little bit in the book, but I thought that was a fascinating, a fascinating discussion to have along with um, the covenant community and what that looks like. Yeah. And again, we're just kind of doing a flyover here. I certainly recommend for people to <laughs> pick up your book and to, you know, get into some of the details. I know it's sometimes hard to to do full justice to it, you know, in a short, um, you know, podcast like this, but uh, for now, Moving into the New Testament, uh, you continue with this, uh, you know, uh, prophets, priests, kings uh, idea, and you argue that the twelve were prophets, priests, and kings as well. Uh, so, yeah, where do you see this in the Gospels, or you know, Paul, some of the other letters? Yeah, that's great. So, um, you really see it in the commissions. So there are a couple of commissions, like in Matthew ten. We get an initial commission. That commission uh, for the 12 is only for Israel. And then in Matthew 28, which is what we call the Great Commission, that's now for the nations. In these commissions, or the, or the commissioning of the 72, not just the 12, but the 72 in, um, there in Luke, um, we get traces of this stuff. We get kingly, we get kingly and even priestly language interspersed in there. And so you start to see them now that, that Jesus is now refashioning his disciples and he is now, uh, in light of, in light of his work in the wilderness temptation, he is now empowering his disciples to then become, uh, uh re refashioned, restored images so that they can then spread the gospel to others who then they also can be restored in God's image as prophet, priest, and king. So he, he, he is the consummate prophet, priest, and king. He then restores it in his disciples, and then they too are supposed to then take that off. And you really, I think you really can see it very well, um, or at least more clearly, in the commissioning. That's, that's where I see this. I don't know if you see it anywhere else, Andreas, but that's where well, I you know, or, it's... or like in the overthrow of the demons. It's Stuff interesting like we're having that conversation, and I, I didn't really think about it before we sat down for, for the podcast, but uh, as you may know, of course, I wrote my dissertation on the sending theme in John's Gospel, right, and so right. it's kind of interesting exactly. because, uh, you know, I think about it, and like you said, especially at the commissioning there in, in John twenty twenty one. so my findings mm -hmm. in my dissertation were that 
that the disciples are basically Jesus' messengers. They're his representatives, you know, basically passing on the message, the good news. It's not about them. It's about Jesus. And so uh, mm-hmm. just from reading of, of John's gospel, at least, you know, more within a kind of Johannine theology orbit, right. uh, I'll be honest with you, I would not have probably naturally come up with this priest, prophet, king, you know, template. I probably right. would have come up more with kind of a messenger, you know, sending, uh, you know, label kind of within John's overall, you know, sending Christology. So again, mm-hmm. this is unscripted mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. but how would you respond to that? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it fits in very well. It's just that he's not going, uh, I think John, John's is so Christological and it's so, I'm going to totally use this word. This word is used. It's almost overused, but it's so cosmic and apocalyptic. Like it's so synthetic. It's so, it's so massive, right? That it's, it's these broad strokes. And so the, the prophet, priest, and king dimension would go inside that. Do you see? It would, it would fit, it would fit inside that. Um, yeah. So the sending, the sending is a more synthetic and broad and cosmic way of stating what I'm stating. That's what I would, that's mm-hmm. how I would, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, unpack that. And also, and, um, I've, I've started to notice this more because I just finished this book on the gospels that in, I think you've got to tie it to the exorcisms that Jesus, when Jesus, when he commands his disciples to exercise demons, I mean, that's clearly a royal in a kingly dimension. At least I think it's clearly it's tied to their, their royal status very military in language, but I think it's also tied to their priestly, to their priestly status because these demons, and this is very strong in Mark's gospel, they're called unclean spirits. Very unique to Mark, unclean spirits. And so they are these priests, they're Jesus is commissioning these priest kings to remove defilement from people, to remove defilement from creation as Sort of newly installed priest king, so I, I, I would want to mm-hmm. see that as well. I, I think it's the exorcism is is one of the clear. So, so the commissioning, specifically the exorcism, yeah. you really see it. Yes, we'll have to leave it there for now. But uh, in the final chapter, <laughs> you know, just uh, finishing out the the book, you discuss the church and the new creation. So I, uh, you know, I think some might be surprised that, you know to hear those juxtaposed, you know, the church and new creation, because they may suppose that believers will be part of God's kingdom in the new creation. So can you explain uh, any reason why you, you know, don't say, you know, why, why you don't link kingdom with new creation, why you link the church in a new creation, or is that just the title? It's just the title. Yeah. It's just the title. Um, I wanted... So I, I've read some books on heaven, and they're they tend to be really goofy. Um, and again, this is sort of my dispensational upbringing here, and I haven't read any recent books on heaven, but there aren't many out there. The ones that are 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 odd. Um, so I kind of wanted to come at this question: say, I want to talk about heaven, or what I mean there by heaven, I mean the new heavens, the new earth, the eternal state um, after. 
the general the general resurrection after Christ's coming when he when he establishes us he establishes this community in the eternal state. What does that look like with regard to the church or God's people as prophet, priest, and kings? And one of the things that I noticed in Revelation 21 and 22 is that there is very explicit, and I think it's I think it's explicit uh, uh, mention of priests because everybody, the church, every every person in the church has the word. Uh, um, Remember, uh, the high, only the high priest had God's name on their forehead. Well, now everybody, because everybody is now a high priest. Everybody has God's name written on their forehead. So that's priestly. And then the kingly uh, dimension, there's an allusion there. I can't remember which verse it is, but there's an allusion to Daniel 7 about reigning and ruling. So that's the kingly dimension. And then the prophetic dimension um, would just be, we all know God's word. We're speaking it to one another that sort of idea. So I kind of want to explore what does this look like in its, in its consummate state. And we are fully restored now as kings, priests, and prophets. And so, what, I mean, I think, I think this gives us good uh, fodder. This, this gives us a good ingredients to have really good discussions about what, what, what our lives will be like in the world to come. And, and in, 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 in our relationship to the in, to the new creation, to the to the cosmos, because I think we can really start to study this and work it out. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, please also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Please join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.